Today we're going to light the first outer candle of the Advent wreath, which is the hope candle. Um, the hope that comes with Christ uh, meant a lot different to the Israelites before the birth of Christ. But today, standing this side of the cross, we have the hope that Christ is going to return and make all things right and new. So Sarah is now going to read a passage from the book of Jeremiah for us. Jeremiah 23 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This morning's topic, what we're looking at in an Advent longing, is the longing for justice. And I'm just aware as I'm walking up here that this is a word that's used a lot these days. It's, a, it's really, and it's become not just uh, uh, something that we learn from our God. It's become an issue of contention. Even this week, we're coming into this morning after weeks where, where trials have been resolved in our own country in the face of the, a jury of their peers, and we, we plead, Lord, may there be some approximation of justice that takes place in these places. May there be some approximation of justice, Lord, in the face of whether it be tragedy or evil, Lord, may justice be approximated here. I'm going to use that word a number of times this morning because no matter what, if it's a justice that comes from peers, people like you and me, it is at best an approximation, which leads us to why we're in this Advent series, that we have a longing, not for an approximation of justice, not for an estimate at justice. We want to see justice face to face in the person and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We long for his return because he alone is the king of justice. And we'll see him this morning in our passage in Jeremiah 23. I've spent much of our time in recent months walking through what it is to seek the Lord and to hear his voice in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll turn to that in introduction in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have given us a glimpse of yourself. You have made yourself known by your creative activity and the authority of your voice. Lord, this morning I pray that as we, as we see these glimpses, as we catch these 
peeks at what is perfection, what is right, true, good, beautiful, Lord, that we would long for nothing less than you. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts filled with faith that long for your presence, your justice, and your grace. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Many of the last months have been making the point as we work our way through the gospel of Mark that if you hear the voice of Jesus, you have heard the actual voice of God. Really, it came to the climax in the the Mount of Transfiguration just this past week. If you hear the voice of Jesus, you are hearing the voice of God, so it's right that the Father would say, you should listen to him. To hear the voice of God, you must encounter God's own revelation. All right, this is important. We can hear echoes of the voice in creation. But if we are to come to know who God is, what he thinks, how he is, and what he has done, we're going to see that only by hearing God's own voice to us. Revelation. You must hear his prophets speak by the Lord's own authority. You have to hear the phrase, thus saith the Lord. You must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ on the authority of the Lord's own apostles sent with the word of the gospel that the Lord himself had given to them and performed among them. You want to hear the voice of the Lord, you'll listen to his prophets and his apostles as they recorded for us faithfully and preserved for us to this day according to his word. This is how God has chosen to reveal his voice. And yet, there's something that remains true, even out in the street, even in the countryside and in our homes and in the streets, there is evidence of the one who made us. We see that being attested to also throughout the scriptures. In Romans chapter one, verse 20, it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There are things that we can know about God not even by his voice, but by what his voice brought into being, creation. We can see the echo of his voice in creation and know something, something about God specifically, his eternal power and his divine nature. We can see the Lord in his creation. Psalm chapter 8, one of the best psalms to see this. I'm going to read just a few of the verses at the beginning of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You see, we get a perspective not only on God, not only on his creation, we get some perspective on ourselves, some revelation from God about who we are, 
in the midst of this creation by looking at creation. We see how majestic is your name in all the earth. The evidence of the creator is in the earth. And when we look at your heavens, the moon, the stars, something we do a great deal of in our own county, right? There is a natural welling up of many questions. As we look at the moon and the stars, we begin to ask questions like, who is the glory of the heavens? What is man that heaven would be mindful of him? Jeff Bezos, after a recent Blue Origin flight, he said this, the most profound piece of it, that is his recent journey, for me was looking out at the earth and looking at the earth's atmosphere. Every astronaut, everybody who's been up in space, they say this, that it changes them. They look at it and they're kind of amazed and awestruck by the earth and its beauty, right? Beginning of Psalm 8, right? All the wonders, but also by its fragility. I can vouch for that. Fragile. When I conceive of the earth or when I watch shows that take place in space and I look at this blue speck, fragile is a word that comes to mind. It's a good word to describe our condition on our planet. The psalmist is right, therefore, to ask the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? We are fragile. What does this fragile blue speck spinning there in space have doing their spinning uninterrupted, ongoing, with humanity multiplying on the face of the earth? What is man that you are mindful of him on that tiny blue speck? The answer is found at the beginning of creation. What is man that you're mindful of him? So there's, there's no like intrinsic value, right? Except for Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And in, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And right there, we see the value. We see, what is man that you're mindful of him? Ah, he's the creature. Mankind alone, male and female together, created in the image of God. And so, not only when we look at creation, the, the mountains and the oceans, the stars, and the moon and the sky, but when we look at humanity, we hear the echo of a creator's voice. And more than that, we see something of his image in our midst, the Lord's revelation is known by the mouth of the Lord alone. But there is a place in creation that the voice of the Lord echoes in a profound way. It's in the soul of mankind who are created in his image. In the soul of mankind. There are certain thoughts, there are certain behaviors and there are certain longings that are in the soul of mankind that tell us something about the creator in whose image we are made. I want to offer a lengthy quote by Blaise Pascal, and I actually didn't put it on the screen here because I just want you to listen. There's some complicated, poetic, powerful, philosophical words here, but pay attention closely. I'll add just a few little words to help us understand. 
Blaise Pascal says, all men seek happiness, okay? Get those four words right at the front. That's his premise. We all seek happiness. And he says, this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend toward this end, the end of happiness. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object of being happy. This is the motive of every action of every man. And yet, after such a great number of years, no one without faith has reached the point to which all continually look. There are none who are truly, enduringly happy. After all these years, all complain. You want to know whether or not people are happy? Watch them for five seconds, typically around Christmas, and they'll complain. All complain, princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions, all complain. A trial so long, so continuous, and so uniform as this pursuit of happiness should certainly convince us of our inability to reach the good by our own efforts. What is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. Why, as he seeks to, to obtain things that he does not have, to fulfill some longing for happiness that he has not yet obtained. But these are all inadequate. Because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. It's for that reason that the, in the middle of his quote he said that no one has obtained this great end of happiness except by faith. We don't actually obtain it. We receive it as a gift of grace. Now, as I read that, I recognize it may sound mysterious, even a bit mystical, but I would suggest to you that it is eminently biblical, even theological. You see, we were not created like the mountains or the sea or the animals or the birds. We were created in the image of God. Mankind alone in all of creation bearing the image of God, and so we will only be satisfied by the things of God and the ways of God. The Lord, by God's own design, our innermost longings are for heaven. And anything short of heaven, any approximation that remains only an approximation, won't satisfy. It can't. And before you think I'm painting humanity with some sort of overly positive inner longing, some great light that is within us, while our longings are for God, our sinful brokenness is that we try to fulfill our things with created 
things, to fill that void of happiness with created things. Yes, we may have a righteous inner longing, but we fill it with idolatry. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, again, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It is by God's own words that we have the revelation of God. It's because God has spoken. But in the longings that are often so often shared across humanity in a variety of cultures and a variety of circumstances, we have what N.T. Wright in his book Simply Christians calls a sort of echo of that voice. And this is the theme of our Advent celebration this year. To pay attention to the echo of the voice that makes its way throughout all of humanity created in the image of God. You see, we can't trust our longings as authoritative any more than we can trust the echo of a voice as authoritative. Far better that we would come face to face with the voice and hear clearly and profoundly and be confronted with the truth. But in humanity's shared longings, we discover a question. Not a great revelation, but a question that the voice of God himself alone can answer. I would ask us, let us pay attention for just a moment to some of the longings that are shared among all of humanity and allow those longings to be fulfilled by the answer that is found in the voice of God. These echoes that are common among humanity, there are many, but this Advent we will look at four that are laid out in, by N.T. Wright. I think they're very helpful. A longing for justice, a hunger for relationships, a quest for spirituality, and a delight in beauty. Are these things not shared by mankind? We will look at them as we work our way through the associated scriptures. This Advent, we explore the echoes of a voice. And my prayer is that we would seek the scripture, the authoritative, sure, clear, and present word and voice of God for answers to the questions so often asked by our longing, fickle, approximate soul. We're going to find good answers and a new authoritative longing. Let's look at Jeremiah 23 as we discover this longing for justice. I want you to read with me verses 1 and 2. Just follow along. In Jeremiah 23, it begins with the words, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You may know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, and yet he's the prophet that goes around declaring woe everywhere he goes. Curse, judgment. Why is he the weeping prophet? Because he weeps at the reality of the judgment that is upon the people of God and its shepherds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. In verse 1, we see very quickly there's something wrong with the world. The world has become a dangerous place. That, is that a surprise this morning? 
Did I just wake you up with the news that the world is a dangerous place? This is something that we all know very well. The world has become a dangerous place. You see, sheep don't need shepherds if the world is nothing but green pastures and still waters. But this is not the world that we live in, is it? Something has gone terribly wrong. And there's a phrase that's in here that I think is very important. In verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. There's something that has gone terribly wrong, and it's not just that the world is in need of shepherds, but that the shepherds are failing to protect the flock that belong not to them, but to the Lord himself. There is a pasture that belongs to God, and the shepherds that the Lord sent to protect this people have done exactly the opposite. I would draw your attention for just a moment to Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 12. O house of David, thus says the Lord, O house of David. Take note, when it's speaking of O house of David, it's speaking to the king. Speaking to the king of the people, who's to be a shepherd for the people, just like King David. O house of David, execute justice in the morning. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Let my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Jeremiah is speaking to the king, a supposed representative of God's justice. He was supposed to be a shepherd for the people with justice. And the work of justice is that of a rescuer, that of a deliverer from evil. And the command of justice comes with a severe warning. Execute justice or justice will come to you. We see both of those realities. The command to the shepherds to execute justice and the warning that if they don't, justice will come by the true shepherd of his pasture. Who are these shepherds? Jeremiah chapter 23 and Jeremiah chapter 21. Who are the shepherds? Well, we see if you read through the book, you'll see that they're really both the religious and the political leaders. The kings and the priests and the prophets. Those whose business it was to lead according to the word of the Lord in the spheres of life to which they were to give attention. The spheres of life to which they were to shepherd the people. I want you to actually turn with me. We're going to spend a moment over here in Jeremiah chapter 5. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, it says this. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests Rule at their false direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? That's the appalling thing. That's the shocking and horrible thing. I hope you see this right away. When it comes to justice, the word of the Lord, the true and authoritative voice of the prophet was the greatest guard against 
injustice. But what we see in this passage is the true and greatest guard against injustice, the call of the prophet to make known the word of the Lord according to the counsel of the covenants. They were prophesying falsely. And the guard against injustice crumbles as the priests give attention to the false prophets. Everything goes wrong, first of all. Everything goes wrong when we listen to the wrong word. And get that down. Get that down. Don't forget it. The false prophets were denying the word of the Lord. And the king and the prophets and the people conspired to silence and even murder the true prophets of the Lord who spoke in accordance with the covenants of old. You see, the business of the prophets was not to come up with some creative and new word about the future. That's some mystical prophet who's ultimately going to serve himself. The central role of the prophet was to remind the people of the covenant of God that he had made with them. To explain to them the meaning of the covenant of God that was recorded for them, that was authoritative for them. It was to warn them of their rebellion against the way of the Lord and to encourage them with the grace and redemption of the Lord, all of which is in the covenant of God. And this remains true today. You can easily identify the true and false shepherd. I mean, it's not hard. The false shepherd's voice will sound creative and novel. But the true shepherd's voice will sound like the ancient truth. The true shepherd's voice aren't new words. They're old words from God's own voice. A reminder to repent and a call to trust. The second thing, see this. Before we blame the prophets, the entire predicament of woe in Matthew 23 on all the leadership and the kings and the priests, the people love false directions. My people love to have it so. Sure, they may bicker about one king or another. We like the last king. We don't really care for this one. We like his son, and we're not going to say anything, but it'll be nice. And they may like one faction of priests over another faction of priests, but there are none who truly seek God. The false prophets, evil kings, and the wayward priests, there's nothing unique about them. They're simply giving voice to a people who have forgotten and rejected their God and his covenant with them. They've rejected the word of the Lord. But at the end of this passage in Jeremiah chapter 5, it says this, But what will you do when the end comes, you prophets and priests and people? Literally, justice always has the end in mind. Literally, justice must always remember that the Lord is coming. Any claims of an understanding of justice or an execution of justice has to remember the judge is coming. And when he comes, he will not bring an approximation of justice. He will bring what is right and true and good. This Advent, our longing for justice, ought to turn our minds to the coming of the Lord. And we should ask this question. 
Here's a diagnostic question for you about your conception of justice. And if you pay attention to the news at all now, if you pay attention to the issues that are front and center, more than likely you have some thought, some opinion, some approximation of what you think justice really is right now. Let me ask you this question, though. Will your conception of justice, whether it's a conception in the sphere of politics, in the sphere of law, in the sphere of finance, or in the sphere of religion, will you be so confident of your view of justice when the end comes? And friends, that reorients our view of justice every time. The judge is coming, and we'll know exactly what justice looks like on that day. We ought to give him attention today. May our approximation of justice ever be being shaped by the reality of the coming of the judge, so that when we come face to face with our righteous king and judge, will we think our understanding of justice best reflects the Lord's own created order? And best reflects his own revealed word. You see, we don't get to make things up. We don't get to make up novel ideas. We have a revelation. We have a God, and he has made himself known. The word of the Lord is the just standard of justice. And the business of those who lead the people isn't to create neat ideas, things that please the people, The business of those who lead the people who shepherd God's flock is to remember God's word and to shepherd the people in light of the judge who is coming. Friends, I truly believe that one of the greatest things that we can get in us, in any thought about justice, is, Lord, come quickly. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, come quickly. I think it'll fix so much of our confusion. The passage continues over in Jeremiah 23. If you look at verse 3 with me, I want to read it. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall, not, they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall, listen, any be missing, declares the Lord. Not one will be missing. You see, the shepherd can call the people by name. They are the people who belong to him. He calls the remnant to himself, the flock that has been scattered by means of his own just judgment in the exile. And he calls his people out of exile back to himself and back to the land. I would suggest that verse 4, where it says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. I think that that has its first fulfillment in Nehemiah and Ezra. They are the most immediate fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And you're like, how so? I don't have time to go into it today. Go read Nehemiah and Ezra. It would be profitable for your week as you explore a longing for justice. Let me say simply this. 
Nehemiah and Ezra would oversee and execute the gathering of God's beloved children back to Israel in their homeland. And Nehemiah specifically would remember God's covenant with his people. He would remember God's promise of rescue to his people. And Ezra, what would Ezra do? Ezra would teach the people. How so? By opening up the word and making it plain to them. That's how Nehemiah and Ezra are good shepherds. They remember the covenant of the Lord and they open up the word and make it plain to the people. And that's just the beginning of the fulfillment of verse 4. How about the coming of Jesus? Is this not the beginning of the ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy? We see Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And when he's walking along the sea, he says the same thing that Jeremiah says here. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, he says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? Ezra. He began to teach them. He began to make plain for them the things that are true about the word of the Lord and his kingdom. What does the good shepherd do? He gives the people God and his word. He teaches them the way of his kingdom. Yes, he heals of disease. Yes, he casts out evil. But his response to shepherdlessness is to teach them many things. This is what a shepherd does. And then we have the great and ultimate fulfillment, the second coming of Jesus and the final fulfillment of the great hope of the people of God. Our longings for the coming of Jesus is the longing for the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. If we can learn the longing for the return of our Savior, we can learn the longing for the fulfillment of everything we truly lack. On that day, we'll have our God face-to-face, redemption accomplished, applied, and complete at the day of the return of our Lord. Jeremiah 3, verse 15 says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What do we need, church? What do we need in our longing for justice? We need the word of the Lord with knowledge and understanding. And I can, I can hear them. I can hear the accusers. I've, I've read their articles and I've heard their voices and I've seen their tweets and they say, yeah, I've seen what your knowledge will do. It's not enough to just know. And if you've read the Bible at all, you'll know what kind of knowledge is being spoken of here. It's the sort of knowledge that brings about the transformation and a longing for what is known. Church, we do, we don't say knowledge isn't enough and so we have to do some other thing. Friends, if it falls short of the approximation of God's own justice, it's because we don't yet know. We don't yet understand. We have to be humbled by the truth of God's word. And here's what we find. We find verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up 
for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. For David a righteous branch. The meaning here is simple. God is not done with the line of David. Zedekiah, the present king in the line of David in which Jeremiah was writing, was not a righteous man, but he led the people in great evil, something far from any approximation of, ju- of justice, but rather in great evil and idolatry. He is not a righteous branch. But there will be one in the line of David who will reign as king according to righteousness. His name is Jesus. He will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, which you ought to ask, by the way, a question. Why in the world is Bethlehem called the city of David? Isn't that Jerusalem? Isn't that the great city of David? Even the fact that Luke would call Bethlehem this tiny, nowhere, backwater town, the city of David, where David was born and where he was raised among his family as a shepherd, is a reminder that it isn't in the great, powerful institutions, even of the temple or the political leaders in Jerusalem. But it's according to God's own conception of justice that he will rule, not according to the conception of men. And he shall reign as king, specifically as king. Look at the attributes of king. If you look at the passage, it says, he shall reign as king and deal wisely, execute justice, and righteousness in the land. Deal wisely. What is wisdom? Many of you have studied wisdom before, and you know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? The heart of justice and righteousness is to begin and center all things in the Lord alone. The beginning of justice is to remember that the Lord is coming The end is coming, and all justice has an eye to the end, has an eye to the fear of the Lord. The judge is coming. True justice does not rise up from among men. True justice is from above. True justice, not an approximation. True justice and righteousness is not the product of our labor. Rather, We are humbled under the justice and righteousness of the Lord who has come down and has been revealed to us. We simply seek to align ourselves with what has been revealed. Thus, we don't create justice. We're humbled and transformed by justice. We're humbled and transformed by the wisdom of our God. Execute justice and righteousness. I wish we had a lot of time, which we don't. But just briefly, this idea of executing justice and righteousness. Justice is this Hebrew word mishpat. In nearly every case, this word is used to refer to the law or the right application of those laws, the right application of those whose role it is among the people to apply the laws of the land among the people. Justice in, 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 in that way, justice requires the pursuit of wisdom. Every case that comes before the, the one who sits in judgment on this earth is unique. 
And it has a unique set of circumstances. And it is going to require one who is wise to execute justice. In a, in the, a, a book that was recently read by our, our women's discipleship group, written by Thaddeus Williams, he offers this definition of justice. He says, justice has been defined for millennia as giving others what is due them. A couple examples, if a person labors for a day's wage for, of $100, justice demands that he is paid his day's wage of $100, right? If two men qualify for the reasonable preconditions of a loan, Justice demands that both receive the loan without prejudice or ill motive. It's worth noting the distinction between justice and mercy, though. If a man failed to work for a day's wage and yet still receives pay for the full day, is that justice? But it is mercy. If a man commits a crime of theft, stealing $100 from another man, and the judge lets the man off without making restitution. That's not mercy. It's actually injustice. Yes, the thief has cause for rejoicing, but the man who was stolen from was denied restitution. That was owed him. You see, wisdom is needed. There's a certain level of knowledge that an, an understanding that is needed for the right execution of justice in the land. Justice requires the prerequisite of wisdom. And how great is the wisdom that's come down from above? Is he not the one who has the claim that, that rebels have stolen glory and worship that is due him? Does he not have that rightful claim? And yet... He's not only freed us from the punishment of our crime, but he's chosen himself to pay the debt. You see, in Christ and in his cross, we have justice and mercy. Not injustice, not a miscarriage of justice when sinners are forgiven the debt that is owed, but just and the justifier in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One more quote from Thaddeus Williams. He writes, What no one seems to be talking about, though it's at the bedrock of all injustice, is worship. Theistic justice, bowing down to something that is worth bowing down to, is not a justice issue. It is the justice issue from which all other justice blooms. See, what we discover is that all of justice is a right ordering on, of the entire universe under the God who is worthy of worship from his image bearers. The greatest call of justice, I find this, this, is, this worldview is, is, is grounding reality for us, that the greatest call of justice is that we would give God the worship that is due him. That's justice. The greatest implication of justice for the lives of the community is that the Lord has given this special creation of his, this mankind, the unique dignity of being created in his image, given our unique value as image bearers, what do we owe one another? What is just toward a fellow image bearer? 
For the sake of the Lord, we do not owe one another a careful reverence, but rather, humbled before the Lord, we owe him the reverence of a care for one another. You see, when the Lord remains at the center, our, our understanding of justice is reoriented and we're given a genuinely God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered worldview. Something the world has seen so very little of. But there's also a danger of forgetting that this careful reverence is for the sake of the Lord. It's the danger of, of developing some sort of humanistic or social justice in which mankind is the greatest good and the measure of justice. Friends, we are not the greatest good. We are at best an image of the greatest good. In the end, as Jeremiah 20 reminded us, the great good will arrive. And in the end, real justice will arrive. Justice and righteousness begins with wisdom, and he's coming. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, and he's coming. All true justice has an orientation toward the worship of the Lord. Let me suggest that at the end of our passage, we have something that should shock us as we close. Verse 7 and 8. Therefore... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries from which he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. You know what that first part is talking about? The, the central religious practice of the people of God, given by God himself for them to practice. The Passover. There is a day that is coming when they will no longer say, do you remember the day we were brought out of Egypt? But rather they'll say, do you remember the day when we were brought out of exile? You see, redemption is coming. There is a greater rescue that is coming than that which that has come before. For generations, the people remember the day of the Lord's rescue out of Egypt. But the day will come when that rescue will pale in comparison to their return under Nehemiah and Ezra and the remembering of the Lord. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, we can now see that the day has come. And the day is coming in which both the rescue out of Egypt and the rescue out of exile will both recede in our imaginations. Let's remember, in the rescue out of Egypt, they never really entered the true land of rest. Let's remember that in the call of the people out of exile, not all returned. And when they did, they came with idols. But we have a rescue that is accomplished in our Savior Jesus Christ. And when he returns again, all his people, not one will be missing. You see, the cross is the new standard of justice and of rejoicing. The resurrection is the new standard of rescue. Even this morning, we gather in this place to remember the great redemption, that he who died for us, he who was raised for us, he too will return for us. Do you long for that? 
Do you long for the return of the Lord to make all things right and not one of his people from whatever flock to which they are scattered, even sheep that are not of his fold? He's going to go and get them. Do you long for that day? There are many words about justice these days. Some would demand that all people share in some level of equity by the establishment of a new social order. Some would demand that justice simply requires that the individual doesn't do damage to others while seeking his own good. Let me suggest that true justice, the only justice that will finally satisfy the human soul, is not some middle ground through these sort of liberal and conservative conceptions, these left and right conceptions of justice. It's not some middle ground that we're supposed to discover, but true justice is to be humbled by the reality of the glory of the Lord in the midst of the people. And let me tell you this, his glory was here before any of those conceptions of his justice ever appeared. He's not the great middle ground between worldly extremes. He's the center. He is the object. He is the one and only. Everyday justice in our courts, in our communities, in law enforcement, in business, in our neighborhoods, even in our homes, is only ever a rough approximation of God's own standards of righteousness. If we ever find ourselves enjoying a moment of, of peace in this land, it's cause to rejoice. Thank you, God, for the breaking in of some, some element of justice. Thank you, Lord, but we long for the righteous king. We long for the righteous king, the judge, the governor, and the shepherd to return. And we know that there will be a day in which we say these words, and these are some of the most precious that we could remember this entire Advent season from Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become not a rough approximation, not our... Human, humanity's best effort at remembering and applying. But the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his anointed. And he shall reign forever and ever. Lord, give us a glimpse of that day with laws and governors and peoples and justice and righteousness in this land. But Lord, may our hearts never be satisfied see him face to face. Heavenly Father, I pray that this reflection on the reality of, of shepherdlessness, you do call for shepherds, you do call for those who would speak rightly the covenant of our Lord, you do call for kings and governors, you call for those who would lead us in our homes and in our religious establishments. But Lord, our longing is for the righteous branch. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've watched him. Lord, we even have been touched by him to have faith. But Lord, we long to see you face to face. Lord, work in us to walk according to the humility of a people who have seen the grace of our God. And then cause us to long for your grace to appear once and for all, forever and ever. Amen.